everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Ronald Yates, the author of Finding Billy Battles, The Improbable Journeys of Billy Battles, and the forthcoming third book in the Battles trilogy, as well as several nonfiction books. William Fitzroy Raglan Battles is, when we first meet him, a centenarian in the Wadsworth Old Soldier's Home. We make his acquaintance through the eyes of his great-grandson, although Billy tells most of his story in his own words. And the great-grandson, Ted Sales, is recalling his own introduction to his elderly relative now long in the past. My first meeting with William Fitzroy Raglan Battles was on a warm June afternoon in 1958. We sat on the veranda of a red-brick dormitory building on the grounds of the Wadsworth Old Soldiers' Home in Leavenworth, Kansas. Battles was really old, and the truth be known, he kind of frightened me, though I didn't let on that he did. I was only twelve at the time, and I didn't even want to be there. Chances are you have never heard of William Fitzroy Raglan Battles, and there is no reason why you should have. I know I hadn't, until that humid afternoon in the waning days of the Eisenhower era. Today I often wonder how I could not have known about battles, how a life as full and audacious as his could have gone unnoticed for so many generations. God, how I wish I could have known him better." But his life, as was no doubt the case with that of millions of other anonymous participants in history, was simply lost, crushed underfoot in the unrelenting stride of time. Of course, there was no way I could know at the time that this meeting would trigger a series of events that would lead me on an extraordinary journey into the past and change my life in ways I could never imagine. When I look back on that first meeting, I wonder why I was so fearful. William Fitzroy Raglan Battles was not a particularly menacing man. But there was a definite hardness to him, the kind of stern, leathery countenance that you get from taking, and perhaps giving, too much punishment over a lifetime. I particularly recall his eyes. They were the color of pale slate, and almost as hard. Maybe that was what frightened me, those eyes and the way they cut into you. And now, please join me in welcoming Ron Yates. Hi, Ron. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. It's great to be with you. Uh, you spent most of your life as a journalist, uh, traveling to many of the places that Billy Battles visits. Fill us in on your career before you decided to write fiction, or faction in this case, but we'll get to that later. Well, I spent about 25 years as a foreign correspondent with the uh, Chicago Tribune. Uh, I was working and living in Asia and Latin America. And for much of that time, I covered war, revolution, other forms of human mayhem. It was, a, it was a great career because I was on the front lines of history. Uh, I, re- I covered, for example, I covered the call the fall of uh, Saigon and was evacuated by those U.S. Marine helicopters on the last day. I, I was also evacuated from Phnom Penh <laughs> as the Khmer Rouge entered, and I covered the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing and the war in Afghanistan and revolutions in Nicaragua and El Salvador and a bunch of other uprisings and violent demonstrations. So never a dull moment. Right. Um, and, and then you were in academics for a while. Uh, yes, I was. I, I, uh, I left the Chicago Tribune. Uh, uh, I left the Chicago Tribune in 1997 uh, to, to write a book. And then while I, after I finished the book, or I actually was in the process of finishing the book, I got a call from the University of Illinois, and uh, they asked me to come down and to become the head of the Department of Journalism and teach, which I, I really wanted to teach. So I did that uh, for about uh, for a while, and then uh, and then uh, I, I was uh, such a bad department head that they made me the dean of the entire college. <laughs> I did that for about a seven or eight years, 
and uh, I survived it. I, I think it was worse than covering war. Hey, I've heard that uh, from other academics that I know. So what caused you to make that shift away from pure reporting into a mix of fact and fiction? Well, it wasn't really a sudden shift. I always knew I wanted to write novels, but as a foreign correspondent, I just never found any time to do it. So, uh, as I said, back in 97, I left the, the Tribune to write a, this corporate biography of the of Japan's Kikkoman Corporation, which is the, the soy sauce bank maker, uh, which also happens to be Japan's oldest continuously operating company, dating back to 1630. At any rate, when, when that was finished, I was offered this, this full tenured professorship at the University of Illinois teaching journalism, and uh, then, as I said, a couple of years later, I was made the dean so, uh, of the college. So once again, I didn't have any time to write novels. And uh, I've just uh, in, you know, covered up with all kinds of academia, you know, covered up with academia, the administrative duties and all that. Finally, in 2010, I left the university. I moved to California. And a couple of years later, then I was able to begin my novel writing career. <clears throat> And did you start with the Billy Battles novels? Was that the story you'd always wanted to tell? Uh, yeah, I got that was the first. I, I had had this in my mind for a long, long time. How I might, you know, be able to blend uh, the things I did as a foreign correspondent with my upbringing in Kansas. So that's kind of where I, I, I had this idea. Actually, uh, Carolyn, it goes all the way back to when I was a, in college. Uh, I was a uh, an intern at the Kansas City Star. And my one of my assignments was to go out to the Wadsworth Old Soldiers Home, which is uh, now something else. It's the Eisenhower, uh, I think, uh, Veterans uh, Medical Center. But it, so I interviewed this guy uh, who was 98 years old, and he was a Spanish American war veteran. And I sat on the front porch of this one of these Romanesque buildings, talking to him, and it, that stuck in my mind the rest of my life. And I thought I'd like to be able to create a, a book around this man, you know, and uh, that's kind of where it all began. Huh. So um, all historical fiction is, I think, a mixture of, of truth and story. I mean, we, we can't be accurate. I've had this conversation with various other historians who've written novels, but because we have to imagine conversation, we have to imagine feelings and, I mean, even things like settings. I mean, they're all reconstructed now, so we're, we're always using our imaginations. But we do try, I think, as historical novelists to create a very, um, as accurate a portrayal or as authentic a portrayal as we can. Maybe that's a better word. Um, and so when you talk about the Billy Babbles novels being faction rather than fiction, do you have something more specific in mind? Is it because of this gentleman that you interviewed at the soldier's home? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the tricky part. I, I, I call my work faction because it's, it's really both fact and fiction. Some of the events in the book, especially those dealing with real people, did happen. Uh, was my character directly involved in them? No, not really. However, uh, I have members of my family who were native Kansans, and some of the experiences I write about did happen. Of I course, see. I. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, I'm, I thought you were finished. So just please keep going. But but I've, I've woven some of my own experiences into the storyline also. I, I really think it's important to weave as many of your own experiences as you can into the storyline, and that gives the story a ring of truth or credibility, if you want, if you will. But the, you know, novelists ask readers to suspend their belief when it comes to things that their characters do. But um, if you're writing historical fiction, especially, <clears throat> I think you have to be true to the time and place 
in which a story takes place. And, and all three books of the trilogy required a, a lot of research. I wasn't around in the 19th century, believe it or not, <laughs> or the early part, early part of the 20th century, so I had to spend a lot of time researching those eras. And I, I'm a reporter by training, and as such, I, I, I'm always concerned with accuracy. Um, in writing the first two books in the trilogy, I, I dove deeply into these time periods I was writing about. For example, uh, I, I went so far as to find old Santa Fe Railroad timetables, so I knew exactly how long a train trip was between Lawrence, Kansas, and Dodge City, and what route it took. Uh, I did the same thing with book, in book two with the SS China, which is the ocean liner that Billy is on to Asia. The, the China was a real ship, so I learned as much about it as I could, how fast it could travel, what route it took to the Far East, etc. And uh, so I guess finally I'd say that accuracy in writing historical fiction is really critical. And that may sound like a paradox, but it really isn't. Uh, a critical element in historical fiction is the way people communicate with one another. You want to make sure your characters, if they're in the 19th century, as mine are when, when Billy Battle's uh, the trilogy begins, are using the correct, correct uh, lingua franca. You know, you don't want them using 21st century vernacular, saying, "Oh, this is uh, this is uh, weird. This is weird. This is uh, you know." Get out of here! They don't. They didn't use words like that in those days. So you want to make sure that it, that it's accurate. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the side of my desk where I have this vast sheaf of papers that says, you know, distance from Moscow to so and so is here, and so much more if you go by road and and so on, because I'm tracking this whole um, uh, incidents of unrest that took place in 1537 in Russia. And so every single part of the journey, I have to know exactly how far it was and how long it took to ride that way. And if you were going as part of an army, would it take longer or less long and all of that kind of thing. So I absolutely sympathize with what you're talking about. Uh, so let's start with your first book, Finding Billy Battles. Um, as I read in the introduction, Ted Sales, Billy's great-grandson, sets up the series by introducing us to Billy as an old man. And Ted himself is 12 at the time when he meets his great-grandfather. Uh, but although he appears only in the prologues, he plays a crucial role in the series. So uh, you mention, in fact, um, on your website and on the back of the book, that for much of his life, Billy is a man missing and largely unknown to his descendants. So tell us about Ted and his role in the story. Well, uh, as you say, Ted meets his uh, great-grandfather, uh, William Billy Battles, when he's just about 12 years old. Now, he isn't really crazy about the idea, but his uh, grandmother uh, insists that Ted meet her father. And uh, after a few meetings, Ted warms to Billy, and, and, and Billy warms to Ted, and and then Billy tells Ted that he, he's going to leave him something like 12 or 13 journals along with a bunch of his other belongings, uh, but only when Ted is much older. Uh, in fact, Ted doesn't even receive the request until he's far into adulthood and, and has himself pursued a, a pretty successful career as a, as a journalist. So when Ted finally reads the journals, the correspondence and all the other material that, that Billy has left him, he learns of the incredible life his great-grandfather lived, and, and he kicks himself for waiting so long to read Billy's journals, because in them is a story of, an, of a pretty audacious life that's been fully lived. And, and uh, So the challenge really now for Ted is to, is to write Billy's story. And then he sees how, how to do this, and how am I going to do this? That's a lot of material. How am I going to put it together? And then he sees the answer right in front of him. 
he's going to let Billy tell his own story through his journals, which are really rich with description and conversation and feeling. Uh, because Billy also, and everything else he was doing, he was a, he was a journalist, and so he knew how to he knew how to write, knew how to describe things. And there's also this unpublished 750-page manuscript that's entitled Hell to Pay, A True Account of My Life and Adventures, which Billy has written but has not published. So with some judicious editing of the journals and the manuscript and all that, Ted decides to tell his great-grandfather's story in three volumes. You know, Billy's life, after all, covers 100 years, which is a, a pretty considerable amount of time. Yes, um, and with Chapter 1, he takes over, and he starts really with the earliest years that he can remember, which, of course, sets up the problems that will come to uh, form the, the bulk of the, the, uh, the series. So tell us a little bit about him, uh, who he is in his early years. Well, Billy's born on the family homestead in western Kansas. It's a really arid, inhospitable region near the Santa Fe Trail out west. And uh, when he's about five, his mother, who is now a war widow because of the Civil War, she decides to return to Lawrence, Kansas. That's in northeastern Kansas, where she resumes her life with her, with her family and where she feels Billy will be able to grow up in a civilized town. I mean, she's really concerned about him being a savage, she said, and, uh, and she wants him to be uh, an educated young man and to have some kind of a future. She doesn't want him to be running around out in the wilds of Kansas uh, chasing cattle. So he remains in Lawrence, and he grows up there, and then eventually he even attends the, the newly, found, uh, newly founded uh, University of Kansas for a couple of years. The University of Kansas was, I think, founded in 1866, and he's there attending it in 1877, 1878. So uh, that's, that's kind of where he, uh, that's kind of his early years at least. And is your family from that part of Kansas? You mentioned that you grew up or had relatives who grew up in Kansas. Yes, I'm from. I grew up in northeastern Kansas in Brown County, and uh, and not too. That's not too far from Lawrence. And uh, uh, and then I have other relatives out west, so they're we're scattered all over the Kansas uh, uh, terrain. <laughs> So as you mentioned, Billy does go to the university for a couple of years, uh, mostly because his mother really wants him to. Um, but even while he's there, he actually starts moving into newspapers. Um, he's working for the local newspaper, and he meets a man named uh, Horace Hoss, who was the editor of the paper, and then uh, uh, takes a, a stance in Billy's career that leads him away from the University of Kansas. Can you tell us about that part of the story? Uh, yeah, um... Well, I mean, let's see, he, I guess to say, to go, to look at this from where he is in Lawrence, I mean, when he actually leaves the university and, and, to, and to go to work for, for Horace Halls at the, uh, in, in, in the Dodge City Union, I think. Yes, yes, that's what I'm asking about. Right. Well, yeah, he takes this job because uh, he, he wants to, I think he just wants to get away. He wants to do something different. He doesn't want to be... He's not interested in going to school the rest of his life, which he kind of, he kind of feels he's doing at that point. Uh, he wants to live his life. He wants to have some adventure. Uh, um, he's, uh, you know, he's growing up at a time when uh, things are happening all around him. For example, in 1876, you had Custer being defeated by the, uh, the, the Sioux and Cheyenne nations up in the, the Battle of Little Bighorn. This was a, a major event in American history, and he was, you know, the 7th Cavalry was actually based in 
Fort Riley, Kansas, just west of him. So these are all things. He, he just wants to have some adventures, and he wants to get away from, from the, the academic life. Which is a pretty common thing when you're 20 years old. Yes, and he wasn't even 20. He was only 19, I think, at the time. So, um, so he becomes a journalist, as you mentioned, and you were a journalist. Um, I know you mentioned that you did a lot of research for the books for, in terms of where people would be and all of that kind of thing. Did you also have to research the history of journalism? It's, it's not quite now what it was then, surely. Oh, yeah, it's a lot different. Uh, uh, I taught a class in the history of journalism at the University of Illinois, and I focused mainly on foreign correspondence. So I had a lot of information about the way journalism was practiced in the late 19th and early 20th century. And, you know, newspapers in those days were absolutely critical to a community. And, and just about every town in Kansas had at least one and sometimes two or three of them. Uh, and there are a lot of books out there about frontier journalism and how it was practiced. And, and one of my favorites was this uh, book uh, called Red, uh, it was Red Blood and Black Ink, uh, Journalism in the Old West. It was written by David Derry, who was the head of the journalism department uh, down at the University of Oklahoma. Um, so that was kind of, uh, you know, I, I, so I had to do some research on that. What kind of printing presses were used? Uh, how were they set up? Uh, how were newspapers printed? What kind of ink did they use? What kinds of, uh, how did they do typesetting? There were no tight line type machines back then. You used what they call a California job case, and uh, you had to pull the individual uh, pieces of, uh, you know, print out and put them into a stick, and then you had to put the stick into a form, and the form you had to then put into the uh, printed the the, the, uh, uh, the the printing process, and it was not easy. It was a very complicated, and very difficult process. So this is that's the technological difference, and of course the newspapers. I mean, it, it's astonishing how I mean, even when I was young, uh, there there were many, many more newspapers, print newspapers, than there are now. It's and so we really are in a uh, an area an era of shift, not, I mean, I guess it's an area of shift as well, but era of shift in journalism is what I was going with. Absolutely. And, you know, and don't forget, back in those days, uh, reporters, newspaper people weren't, uh, well, they're not much better off today than they were then, actually, but uh, there, there was a period when, when it was a respected profession, but back then it wasn't really that respected because you had... Uh, newspaper scribblers, as they were often called in those days, they didn't adhere to any set of established journalistic codes or ethics, and, and anything went. And by that mean, everything went, including truth, accuracy, fairness, everything, you know. Uh, and also, reporters back in the 19th and early centuries, uh, 20th centuries, they were often uh, participants in the stories that they covered. Uh, sometimes they even picked up weapons and, and I mean, fought alongside whatever side they were, they were covering or supported. It's what we would call today participatory journalism, <laughs> and it was at its most vigorous. It happened during the Spanish-American War, for example, and, and that's a war in which Billy gets involved in in book two. Uh, you had legendary correspondents such as Richard Harding Davis and, and Jack London and Henry Morton Stanley. They often became a bigger story than the one that it came to cover, and that was just the way it was. Uh, yeah, that was my next question, actually, was the, the disrespect that was shown to journalists. And I remember even reading, um, you know, all those uh, mysteries from the 1920s and 1930s, the reporters are often treated as, 
you know, they're these drunk guys who show up on bars and they, they don't have many, many morals. They're always looking for a story, all of that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's a very different way of um, thinking about it. I mean, I, I know that it, in the moment, in the current political climate, it's, it's um, how should I put this, uh, a thing for certain people to dump on journalists. But there is still the sense that, that people who work for the major papers are serious professionals. And that doesn't seem to have been the... Um, at least the fictional portrayal of journalists back in, even, I would say, before the Second World War. Definitely, and, and that's one of the reasons uh, uh, Billy's wife, uh, I mean his mother, Hannelore, is not happy with him becoming a journalist. She's not, she thinks it's, a, uh, it's a, some kind of a failed, she, he's failing if he does that. She wants him to do something else. I don't know exactly what it is she wants him to do, but she doesn't want him to do that. So... But he wants to do what he wants to do, and that's the way uh, young people are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so Dodge City in the 1870s is, is classic Wild West territory. I mean, it's not just the journalism that is frontier. The whole place is frontier. And, and you bring in, uh, the, the, among the people that, that Billy meets, uh, one of the first is uh, Wyatt Earp of um, uh, Tombstone fame. I interviewed uh, an author who had written two books about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Uh, earlier last year, and uh, he meets Bat Masterson um, and a very Doc Holliday himself and various other people. Uh, it's I mean he's a fictional character, right? So he's he's obviously interacting with these people because this is the story that you want to tell. But was it their story that you wanted to tell, or is it is it really part of his portrayal that um, is enhanced or both by? Well uh, yeah, a little bit of both, I think. You know, a little bit of. I, I grew up in Kansas, right next to the Santa Fe Trail, so I was always fascinated by what life was like uh, in Kansas in the 19th century, when the state was really pretty wild. Uh, one of my passions during my my time in Kansas, when I was living there, was the state's past, and and with its you know its cow towns, its gunslingers, law dogs, all these other assorted characters. So I spent a lot of time researching some of the people whose reputations were actually made in Kansas. You know, Wyatt Earp, for example, Doc Holliday, Bat Masterson, Wildwood Hickok, all those people. And one of my forefathers, one of my great-great-great-grandfathers uh, uh, from that time, he knew some of these people. And uh, I used the, that fact in having Billy rub shoulders with them. And I decided I wanted, to meet, I, I wanted Billy to meet some of these people and turn them into real people rather than these cartoon-like, bigger-than-life figures that they've become over time. So that's why I have Billy interacting with Wyatt Earp and his wife, Josie Marcus, uh, with uh, Doc Holliday, who Billy really liked, and Bat Matcheson, who Billy becomes close friends with. You know, and the thing that's interesting about Bat, for example, Bat's a, a former sheriff and a gunslinger, but he becomes a very successful journalist himself. He's a columnist and sports editor for the New York Morning Telegraph between 1902 and 1921. And, and, and this is a guy who went from Dodge City, you know, chasing down uh, cattle rushers and whatever, to mixing with people like, uh, you know, Dorothy Parker and Haywood Brune and Damon Runyon, who, by the way, was born in Kansas, Damon Runyon was, in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, and in fact, Damon Runyon even used his close friend Bat as an inspiration for the character Sky Masterson in his short stories that uh, those eventually became the, the musical Guys and Dolls. So in book three, Billy, the one I'm working on right now, Billy rekindles his friendship with Bat in, in New York and elsewhere because they have this common thread that they're both journalists. 
Yeah, that was really news to me. I had, I mean, I've heard of Bat Masterson, obviously, but I hadn't, uh, I had not known about him becoming a journalist. Yeah, fascinating. And I, one time I was back in New York uh, for a, uh, it was a, uh, a fundraising kind of a thing, and I, and I, I found out where Bat Masterson lived. I found his, the, the apartment, the building where he lived. Uh huh. I traced his footsteps to where the uh, New York uh, Morning Telegraph used to be. It was about three blocks from his from his apartment. And I remember walking into this little building, and I and I said, "There was a guy sitting at the desk, like a guard." And I said, "Is this the uh, is this the building that Bat Masters lived in?" He says, "Yes, it is." How in the hell did you know that? And I said, "Well, because I, I did some research, and I had the I had his I finally tracked down his address, and this is the address." And he said, "You're right. This is where he lived." Oh wow, <laughs> that's a great coincidence. So, um, so the story really kicks into high gear when Billy learns that people are living rent free on his family's old homestead, the one that you mentioned in Western Kansas. And uh, he and several of his pals ride out to discuss the matter of rent payment. And uh, this provokes a conflict that really consumes most of the book. Right. So, tell us what happens. Yeah, it's. Well, it's probably the seminal event in, in, in Billy's life. He's just about 18, 19 years old, and he travels from Dodge City to the family homestead with a couple of friends uh, uh, from, uh, actually, Mr. Hawes and and, uh, and Ben Minot, uh, who's a, a typesetter uh, from the newspaper, because he really wants to, uh, I mean, he's, his mother asks him to actually see about selling the property, right? So when he gets there, he's confronted by the Bledsoe, Clan of outlaws who've been using the place as uh, headquarters and a hideout. Not uncommon in those days if the place was abandoned. Uh, a shootout ensues, and, and Billy inadvertently kills the matriarch of the Bledsoe clan when she steps into the line of fire between the Bledsoes and Billy and the, and the two men with him. Uh, and it's a killing, killing of Sarah Bledsoe, as mean and nasty as she was, uh, haunts Billy for the rest of his life, and it also sets him and it gives him a lot of problems because uh, the Bledsoe's don't let loose of this. Right. Um, so at this point, he needs to get out of Dodge, as they say. <laughs> and he goes to Denver, and from Denver, his editor sends him to report on the boom towns created by gold rushes and silver mining. And so he's traveling around Colorado and Arizona and ends up in Tombstone and goes all kinds of places. But he also meets a girl uh, whose father, like... Um, Billy's own mother, frankly, isn't too thrilled at the prospect of his daughter marrying a reporter. Exactly. So uh, we're fairly far into the, this book now, so you, you don't need to give us too many plot points unless you're comfortable sharing them, of course. But, um, but do tell us about the area of Colorado at the time and the areas that Billy visits and what ideas you were exploring by sending Billy into all these places. Okay. Okay, well... You know, Billy has to get out of, as you, say, as you say, get out of Dodge, so he heads for Denver because he has an opportunity there. And uh, Billy's mother's not too happy about any of what's happening to Billy. Uh, but, in fact, Denver is, is essentially the beginning of a new life for, for him. He gets a job on the Denver Union, he falls in love with a girl, and then goes on to, uh, on an assignment to write a series of reports on the West's most famous or infamous boomtowns. You know, unlike the cow towns of Kansas, the boom towns of the West were mining towns, mostly Leadville, Central City, Cripple Creek in Colorado, and uh, Virginia City, Nevada, Tombstone, Arizona. Then by exposing Billy to these places, he not only reconnects with people like the Earp Brothers and Doc Holliday, he becomes a seasoned reporter. And the reason, actually, 
for sending Billy on this extended assignment was to separate him from Mally, the girl that he loves. It was a surreptitious agreement between Mally's father and the editor of the paper that Billy works for. Uh, they figured getting him away from her and getting him, separating him would, would, uh, would douse the, uh, the flame of love. But it didn't work. It never does. Uh, keeping young people who love each other apart is always a losing strategy for parents, and uh, <laughs> they should know that, but they didn't. They never do. No. Oh. <laughs> so tell us just a little bit about Mally as a character, because she's a very determined young lady. She's really, I, I, I like Mally a lot, and it was, well, I don't want to explain everything that happens to her, but Mally, at the time, is really the perfect person for Billy. She's bright, she's She's got a great sense of humor. She's she's quite uh, beautiful, very pretty. She's also a very strong woman who provides a, a sometimes impetuous Billy with a safe harbor. She keeps him focused, and it's through her that he learns the value of having a strong family, I think, because he didn't have one. He had his mother, which was a strong woman, but he didn't have this family life. And Mally's mother and father eventually grow to like Billy, and they accept him as a son-in-law. And also, Billy's mother loves Mally because she sees herself in her. Yeah, I, I, th I do think that they're a very good couple. Uh, and I think we should probably leave the first book there and now move on to the second one um, okay. so that we don't give too much away. Um, since it's a trilogy, I think, and since we know from the beginning that Billy lives to be 100, I think it's probably not a uh, spoiler to be known that he survives into the second book. <laughs> Otherwise, they, would, they wouldn't be improbable journeys of Billy Battles. They'd have to be improbable journeys of somebody else. Right. <laughs> uh, so, whereas you said book one on the U.S. frontier, uh, here Billy becomes a world traveler. Uh, in particular, he sets off for Vietnam, uh, which was then called Nam Ki by the people who lived there, and Andochine, or uh, Indochina, by everybody else. So, um, tell us why he goes there. Who is he going to meet? Well, Billy leaves Denver for the Far East in 1894. It's a few months after Mally's death because he just can't cope with her loss. And in book one, uh, readers uh, meet uh, Signore Antonio de Franco, who's an Italian emigre in exile. And they also meet uh, Jan von Ba, also in exile from French Indochina, who happened to be working as a cook at a New Mexico ranch. And uh, so anyway, both are now living in Nam Ki, which is French Indochina. And uh, Billy decides he wants to find them. Uh, there's no, there's really no logic to this move. Uh, but at the time, Billy is just not thinking logically. He's an emotional wreck. And not only because he's lost his beloved Mally, but because he's abandoned his four-year-old daughter, leaving her in the care of his mother and, and Mally's parents. So my objective in book one was to chronicle the first 30 years or so of Billy's life and to show the events and tragedies that shaped his, his life. So when book two begins, Billy has endured probably more tragedy and heartbreak than most people encounter in a lifetime. Uh, and also, another reason is that, you know, the 1890s were a time of great invention in America. The country was uh, really beginning to enter the world of political, um, into the world of, uh, well, actually the world political and economic stage. Um, with the, in 1898, the so-called American empire was created. Um, the U.S. fought its first war outside the Western Hemisphere, which is the Philippines, and it acquired its first colonies, which was the Philippines and Puerto Rico. 
So these were really heady times for the United States, which was just beginning to flex its political and military muscle around the world. And as Billy learns, however, when one nation uh, exerts power over another, hostility, conflict, and often are often the byproducts, and they're not good byproducts. Right, yes. So so he's really more running from something than running to something at this point in his exactly. life. Right. So while still on the boat, uh, Billy already runs into trouble. He's been at sea for maybe 24 hours uh, in the form of the Baroness Katharina Schreiber. So who is she as a person and as a character? Well, the Baroness von Schreiber, she's an inscrutable character. Uh, Recently widowed, she's hauntingly beautiful, highly intelligent, and she's very alluring. But at the same time, she's arrogant and mysterious. And at first, Billy decides he wants nothing to do with her. But Katarina inserts herself into his life by asking for his help. And it turns out that, like Billy, she's running away from something. And in her case, it's a German agent on the, sh- on the ship who is after some secret papers that belong to her deceased husband, uh, a man that uh, she tells Billy that she killed but did not murder. <laughs> and Billy says, that's a fine distinction. Uh, but Billy sees that Katarina is a strong independent woman, perhaps even more so than, than, his, than his family was. And I think their, their unlikely relationship develops in, in this crucible of tragedy and danger, and incredibly, it survives the stress of time until the bond between them uh, becomes almost unbreakable and, and seemingly everlasting. Um, and that's kind of who she is. And uh, uh, as I say, it's, it's not something that he was expecting. Uh, he certainly wasn't looking for a relationship. And as a matter of fact, there is no romantic relationship between the two of them initially. Uh, yes, they, they become friends, I suppose. Uh, or at least they help each other out because they're both being chased. Exactly. And then there are pirates. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, after Billy and uh, Katarina part in the Philippines, because she's gone to the Philippines to be with her brother, who has a, a wood export business there in Manila. So after they, they part, uh, Billy continues his journey to French Indochina aboard a French cargo ship called the Trave, and uh, there is an encounter with Chinese and Malay pirates who plagued the South China Sea in the 19th century. They were all over the place back then. It was a, a pretty nasty place to, to travel. Uh, and in this case, as often was the case, passengers and crew members alike, they, they fight off the pirates who are attempting to board the traffic from their smaller, swifter boats. And um, it's while aboard the, the Trave that Billy meets some people, including a Vietnamese doctor, who uh, will eventually help him track down DeFranco and Ba in Saigon. So, um, so despite all of these obstacles, Billy does get to Saigon. Um, what was Saigon like in 1894? How much of the portrayal that you draw is based on your own experience, and how much of it comes from research? Well, I lived in Saigon in, in 1974 and 1975, as I covered the end of the war for the Chicago Tribune. And at that time, Saigon hadn't really changed much from the city that Billy visits in 1894. In fact, we both lived in the same hotel, the Continental Palace, which was built in 1881, and which was uh, is actually still standing in Lam Som Square. It's a physical symbol of the French colonial, colonial era, and uh, I lived in it for months, and so does Billy. And also, the, one of the main streets in, in Saigon, the Rue Katana, 
1894, which was renamed Tudor Street when I was there. Uh, that was there still and hadn't changed much. And, and Saigon in 1894 was was uh, a much more languid kind of a place. It was filled with these slow-moving, what they call poos poos, which are the French name for rickshaws, and also something called Malabar taxi carriages, which were uh, pulled by uh, donkeys and, uh, and horses. And then you have all these French people, uh, men and women, dressed in white linen, strolling the streets, uh, covered with you know, covered with trees. Uh, and all these places in Saigon are replete with French cafes and bars. And in contrast, as I say in the book, you have the native men and women wore what looked like black pajamas, and many supported white. And, uh, they supported these white and cream-colored chemise tops and. Some covered their heads with white handkerchiefs, and others wore conical uh, straw hats secured with chin straps, and they squatted on their hunches and animated conversation, and many of the older women smiled. Their lips and teeth were a dark crimson from beetle nut, and that's kind of the, the, the city that Billy sees. Yeah, um, and as you mentioned, he does uh, track down his old friend, uh, Signore De Franco, um, who turns out to have married a Vietnamese, Vietnamese woman and to be living quite comfortably in Saigon. Uh, but his other old friend, Ba, is not doing so well. No. Signore De Franco, he owns several black, uh, black pepper plantations in Nam Ki, which is what we all call say, Vietnam today. Uh, De Franco calls black pepper the king of spices, and it really was. For more than 4,000 years in Asia, it was so viable that it was used, even used as currency in some parts of India and Southeast Asia, where it really originated. But in the 19th century, French Indochina, uh, it, French Indochina was, the, Indochina was the world's number one exporter of black pepper. And, uh, of course, this is before the advent of the rubber plantations, which uh, the French eventually uh, uh, had all over Saigon, all over Vietnam, South Vietnam especially. So DeFranco is, is quite wealthy. He's married, and as you said, to this much younger and very lovely Vietnamese woman. And he's ecstatic to meet Billy after almost 15 years. Ba, on the other hand, is involved in the uprising against the French. And he's now a leader in the guerrilla movement. And Billy meets him, spends some time with him, and learns how oppressive life is for the Vietnamese under French rule. And at one point, Ba's wounded, and Billy comes to his aid with Dr. Son, and that's the Vietnamese man that uh, meets on the Trave, the, the ship going from uh, the Philippines to uh, Vietnam. So between Ba, the revolutionary, and the Franco, the symbol of French uh, subjugation, uh, Billy has to traverse this very diplomatic kind of uh, tightrope between the two people that he really likes, and it's not easy for him. So eventually he does go back to the United States, and we're now about a third way of the way through the second novel, so I don't want to give too much away, but um, it's obvious that his journey is far from over. So you mentioned that he goes to the Spanish-American War at one point. Are there other things that you would like listeners to know about um, the second book and, and things that happened to Billy during this, I guess this is, I don't know if it's a whole 30-year period of his life, but the second period of his life. Well, as you say, he, he, he after he's involved with the Spanish-American War, he does he goes actually goes back to the, well actually he goes back to the to the states after after his time in, in Nam Ki, in Vietnam, and uh, and at this point, uh, <clears throat> because there's a there's about a year uh, where they're not together uh, because uh, 
Katerina goes to Germany. She's ha she's having to deal with some issues she has in Germany with the, with the German authorities uh, um, and also with the family of her late husband. Uh, she wants to cut herself completely off from that family, the von Schreiber family, and she's willing to give up to her inheritance in order to do that. And that's what she does. So there's about a year where they're not together. But when they when he gets back to 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 the United States, Billy and Katerina are they get together for good, kind of. Uh, you know, they're not married, but whatever travels there, they're taking they they begin to take together. Uh, and uh, but still, they have all these issues. Uh, that, that their past seems to dog them wherever they are, and they, and they, like a lot of us, learn that you can't put the past behind you, but you, you can put the past behind you, but you can never really escape it. So it, it follows you the rest of your life, and that's kind of where they are at this point. Um, and that's, uh, and that, that's where we are. So, what would you like readers to take away from the Billy Battles novels? Well, I don't know. There's no. I don't think there's any profound message hidden deep in the trilogy. You know, I, I, I guess what I want readers to finish each book, uh, I, I, I'd like to have them finish each book uh, in the trilogy feeling that they were transported back to another time and that they were immersed in a story well told. Um, I, I, I guess I hope readers will see the world as it once was to the eyes of my characters. I want them to understand that people who lived in the past had the same motivations, aspirations, and problems that people have today. I mean, you know, the technology, the lifestyle values, the morals, they were different. But the forces that motivate human behavior, greed, envy, passion, hate, love, uh, they've remained the same. And finally, if there is something resembling a message for readers, I guess it's this, um, running away from one's problems is not a winning strategy in life. That sounds like a good message. That's something we all need to learn. I think it's probably like separating young people in love. It, it, it doesn't work so well in, unless until you've done it and then you learn. But it is definitely a good message. Isn't it amazing how long it takes us to learn those lessons, though? Isn't it? <laughs> Even when people tell us, it, it doesn't seem to, it takes to, a long time for it to stick, I think. Right. So it's hard to imagine what's left for book three, although Billy does live a very long life, and so I guess he's got uh, many years ahead of him. So you're still working on the, the third book, right? Um, how far along are you, and when do you expect to bring it out? Uh, I'm about, uh, uh, I'm working on book three. I'm about halfway finished with it, and my plan is to have it finished by early summer this year, probably, I, I'm hoping in June. Uh, and in book three, yeah, there's a, you say, what's left? Well, in book three, lots of stuff happens. <laughs> Uh, for one thing, Billy vanishes for several years, and nobody knows, uh, nobody, neither his friends or his family, know where he is or what happened to him or why he disappeared. And uh, I'm in the process of explaining all that now. I'm putting it into the book. But uh, it's a momentous time in Billy's life, and to find out what happens to him, readers are just going to have to pick up that book three. And, and the working title of it is right now, the working title is The Lost Years of Billy Battles, or... Billy Battles the Lost Years. I'm not quite sure which I'm going to use. Okay, but people can search for Billy Battles and Lost Years, and it will probably come back, come up, or at least they can search for your name, and then it, it will certainly pop up when it's out. It'll be because when I get to the third, the third book done, it'll be on Amazon as a as a uh, uh, a set, you know, a book, a set of trilogy, setting in a, in a what they call a book set, I guess. So I want to have all three of them available. 
Great. And have you thought beyond Pretty Battles? Do you have other fiction or faction projects in mind? I do. Uh, when I finish book three of my trilogy, I'm moving on to an authorized biography of uh, Iva Taguri, also known as Tokyo Rose. Uh, she was an American woman who was falsely convicted of treason based on her on perjured testimony back in 1949 at her trial. You know, when I was working uh, as the Chicago Tribune's bureau chief in, in uh, Tokyo, uh, I wrote a series of stories in which the two Japanese-American men who, whose testimony convicted her confessed to me that they lied at her trial. So I wrote the stories, and they were published worldwide in 1977. And in 1977, as his last official act in office, President Ford pardoned Ida based on, on, the, on that reporting on my stories. So it's one of my favorite stories because it demonstrates not only the power of the press, but that journalism really has a critical role to play in providing a voice for the voiceless and in writing wrongs no matter how long ago in the past, you know, something may have happened. And this book is going to be a companion to a New York play that's about Iva that's currently being written by uh, uh, Christopher Hampton, who, is, uh, who wrote The Atonement, an uh, Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter. And uh, it'll be probably published uh, traditionally by whoever uh, after they want me to work with. I'm not sure which publisher it's going to be. And then after I finish that book, it's on to my memoirs as a war correspondent and uh, or as a correspondent in general. And my working title for that book is Looking for Trouble. <laughs> so I remember the Tokyo Rose case. Uh, I didn't realize that you were the person who broke the story. Yes. You know, you knew about her case, huh? I remember from I remember the pardoning. I, I, I think I was aware of the name Tokyo Rose because as a historian, you know, I have all kinds of facts that aren't directly connected to my research that are floating around in my brain. But, but I definitely remember when she was cleared. Yes. Well, she became a very good friend of mine, and, and uh, I, I saw her a lot, and uh, we uh, spent time talking. We were going to write a book together. Uh, she passed away in 2006 at, uh, at the age of about 90, and uh, uh, it's just a, it's a sad story. She was a really wonderful woman, uh, uh, tough as nails, and, and had a great sense of humor, and never really... You know, I always told her, I said, why don't you go on Oprah or something and tell, tell your story, for God's sake, because it's really awful what happened to you. And she wouldn't do it because she just wanted to live her life quietly. Uh, she wasn't looking for any kind of, uh, you know, she, she, it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of a long story. If you wish, Carolyn, I can send you a, a, a kind of an overview of my whole involvement in it. You might enjoy reading that. It might give you some, some background that you don't have now. Sure, that would be lovely. And uh, I wish you good luck on all of these projects. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for, for, for talking with me. I, I, it was, it was a great, uh, a great, great fun, and I always love talking about stuff I'm working on. <laughs> and thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Ronald Yates about his novels, Finding Billy Battles, and The Improbable Journeys of Billy Battles. You can find out more about him at www.ronaldyatesbooks, all one word, .com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cpdesley.com, 
where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.